We hope everybody enjoyed episode 62 with Scottish FA coach and tutor David Bird. Now, here is a snippet of what to expect today. We're, we're a designer of experiences. We're, we're, we're thinking about what experiences will these players need to, to have and have, have, have felt as part of their library, right, that they can draw on, that's going to help them to get to where they need to be. So really seeing that player as, a, as an individual project and everyone is different and they're going to go on their own trajectory. And absolutely the answer is yes, because I think if we're designing environments where they don't have to search, so think about a, a, a passing drill. You know, there's loads of coaches that do this, this Ajax passing. I don't need to search because, because of the rules of the activity, I know that when you pass me the ball, I go there because that's what you've told me to do. So the pattern we're working on is I get the ball, A, B makes a movement here and I play into B and then I go somewhere else and B does this. They're not having to solve a problem, they're just rehearsing a movement. We're excited to welcome Gerard Jones onto today's episode of the Golders Podcast. Gerard is a professional football coach and coach educator who most recently was the elite coach educator for the Royal Moroccan Football Association. Gerard has worked on several continents throughout his coaching career and is the founder of sports coaching education platform, You Learnly. Hi, Gerard. All right, how's it going? Yeah, we're good, thanks. Now, you may be aware, we always ask one question of every guest, and it's... To us, Goldust is sprinkling particles of knowledge to help people for the greater good. What does Goldust mean to you? You're almost sparkling curiosity and inspiration in people to look deeper into stuff so as much as it's you're sharing information you're also planting seeds i think you know because gold dust in itself the fragments it's something that's of high quality and i think that that's great in any if you if you're out to any sort of talent environment or any leadership role or, or any role really jared if you walked into a room full of strangers and we're asked to give an introduction about your professional career, what would be your intro? I would probably say we always, we always lead with uh, our professional background, don't we? And we always sort of describe ourselves like that. And I think it's an interesting question because for years I've always said, oh, my name's Gerard Jones. You know, I've been working for over 14 years, a licensed coach, blah, 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 elite coach, educator, so on or I'd talk about some of the experiences that I've had. And in recent times, I've probably changed maybe since having kids. I'd probably say um, I'm just this guy who's been fortunate to coach this amazing game, this round ball that somehow connected us all over the world, giving me some experiences where I've worked in Morocco, worked in the United States and in England uh, across a number of different roles. And, um, you know, that would best describe me. This, this guy who's an admirer and lover of the game, absolutely obsessed with this game. As a coach developer, mentor, head of coaching, elite coach, educator, academy coach. I've worked in a number of different roles across the grassroots and, and professional game around the world. Now, you mentioned about working abroad and Morocco, particularly one of the places alongside... Uh... Uh, working in the States. 
How have those experience of working abroad helped to shape how you think, coach, and now conduct yourself? The biggest thing I think coaches have always got to think about is how they adapt. And we always talk about this ability to adapt and the importance to you know work under pressure. I'm sure we've all got a million slides where we talk about like the panic zone, the you know, boredom zone, comfort zone, learning zone, all these different zones. Um, and the ability to, to, as I say, work under pressure, deal with changing circumstances. I would say, you know, working in different cultures and, and around different people from different backgrounds has been hugely insightful because you're sort of seeing them in their context. And it's less about me necessarily imposing my belief or my perception upon their world but actually tapping into what is their world and, and first trying to understand the context that I'm working in. Because I think a lot of coaches talk about these qualities that you need, but they don't actually live it and embrace it themselves. They'll forget and they'll, they'll make assumptions and they'll do what they've always done. So whatever works in England or works in America, will assume that that works in Morocco. And it doesn't. You've got to adapt. You've got to find ways to not only bring them with you, but find ways for them for them to bring you with them. And that's really key. So it comes back to relationships. And, you know, the biggest thing I've found, obviously working in America, heavily, you know, competitive in different ways, um, fantastic country, starting to change the culture. People are talking about individual development, but actually it's still probably focused heavily around the team and how many state championships you win and how many trophies you win. And look at me as a coach, how great I am. And it's still dominated by that belief that, you know, to look successful, you have to be this certain way. And that recruits players or attracts more players. You can release players if they're not up to that standard. Whereas, you know, in other countries, I mean, England, we're talking heavily about individual player development as they are in some of the other European countries and around the world. And we're really looking at it from a different lens. You know, you can win all the if we talk about the professional game, all the FA Youth Cups in the world, Premier League 2s, everything, but actually how many players have gone on that career? And even in that, it's understanding what is your level of success? So I would look at player success, of course, those that are having a, a five or a 10-year career, hopefully, uh, playing X amount of 100 games, sustaining themselves professionally. But then for others, it might be playing non-league. That can still be successful. For others, it might be that we've kept that lifelong love in the game and and that we've retained them somehow and they're still in the organisation in another capacity. You know, what's our alumni list? Do we ever look at measuring the coaches that have been in our environment and maybe gone away and then come back? You know, because that's success. In Morocco, slightly different. So I would say working in the UK, we're, we're talking about that ability to be you know, inclusive, to recognise people's talent. I always use this phrase, how can you operate in your own genius? And how can you tap into people's genius? Because everyone has this talent, so figure it out, what it is, and, and really understand what motivates them and why they're here. And, and doing so, you can be vulnerable as a leader, I think. You can be very vulnerable and you can expose yourself. In Morocco, working in that very problematic environment, you know, you're throwing football, you're throwing Africa, you're throwing... Uh, where I was like an Arabic culture into the mix. There's a lot of variables there. Um, and their society is built on 
hierarchy. So it's it's more about structures, rigid structures and seniority. And it looks very different. So success to them from a leadership standpoint, from a playing standpoint, still very team orientated, even though we're talking about individual development. Um, you know, no similar to like being in Brazil, they value grey hair, don't they? It's over there, they value experience, they value uh if I'm in this position, you know, you can't talk to me because you're down here and I'm up here. And it's quite, you know, autocratic in, in style and leadership and what good looks like. So being vulnerable and showing that empathetic uh, care or emotional intelligence can often be viewed as a weakness. You know, I remember as a, a coach educator, an elite coach educator working with, with of course, uh, Osh, who's now at Crystal Palace as the assistant to Vieira. We're doing obviously one of the courses, it might be the A license or the what was our version, like the advanced youth. And I remember we would normally go write questions, you know, and good, bad, or indifferent. And we'll put on demonstrations and we're quite open to go, what did you think? You know, Keith, Davey, what do you think? How would you change it? And we can be vulnerable and it might not have gone great. So we can hold our hands and we go, oh, well, what could we have done better? And in those environments, you've got to be very careful. So even the way in which you'd pose a question where, the audience can ask you, that's different. I remember one of the Moroccans came up to me and was like, we don't do this. You're the instructor and they're the candidates. You don't do this. In French, obviously, he was telling me. He's like, you tell them, they don't tell you. you they don't ask you questions. It's disrespectful. So that was a, an interesting change. And even Osh just gave me advice of saying, just be careful how you do it. Because, it, as I say, it can be, some can be perceived as a weakness. So vulnerability might not be a, a humanistic quality that's valued. By some it will be, because there'll be those that have maybe, you know, because obviously Morocco is a great country where it's so close to Europe, and there'll be those who have worked in Europe and maybe come back to the country. So a lot of different experiences. Um, you know, working with people, finding out what their agenda is. So in Morocco, the landscape changed every day. You know, best experience I've ever had in my life. Beautiful country. You know, the people are great. Players are incredibly talented. Very, very talented. You know, we often talk about players not playing on the street anymore. And actually over there, they're, they're playing on the street. You've got 50-year-old men juggling and doing all kinds of stuff. So they've got street players. So that isn't the problem. The product that's coming through is really good. Um, interestingly, despite some of the coaching, so then for me, it was trying to get my head around of, well, what works here and what doesn't? You know, so for some coaches, the way they would be quite autocratic and dictatorial and direct in their instruction, not so many questions. We were challenging that. So we didn't check, you know, we didn't become a chameleon. We were brought there for a reason. So we, we recognised, well, what are some of the quick wins and what can we do to inspire curiosity, sprinkle gold dust? How can we spark a little bit of curiosity and a little bit of love? Um, and get people to just change their perspective on stuff. And that worked in some respects, but certainly with the, the younger generation of coaches coming through, um, where we saw more like guided questions and what have you, and player ownership. But then even then you'd watch sessions and coaches are what I would perceive as maybe being aggressive, but in their culture, it might not be aggressive. The player doesn't take any offense, but from our lens, we might be thinking, whoa, what's going on over here? So there's all that going on. And, um, and I would say every day was so unpredictable. Uh, sorry if I'm giving you loads here and just reflecting deeply. Not a chance to really talk about it, but 
every every day was a wobbly trajectory because normally we would have our google calendars won't we and our spreadsheets and we're doing zooms and microsoft teams and we're getting everything going and, he, and this is a high performing environment so you've got some of that in there but then you couldn't necessarily plan that far in advance every day changed every day would look very different something could happen whether it's a president organizing a meeting and everyone's got a running around whether it's something else somebody's been fired um and it's not a criticism of the federation or or the anybody over there it's just an observation that you know football in that part of the world very unpredictable um very dynamic times chaotic random it'd be all those work stressful and every day you've also got to like be immune to it and when people ask me what was it like i would say put your head in a tumble dryer and like come out every day it was like that you'd go in and you just didn't know what was going on um but what a great experience because you'd have to pull out a presentation like that or you one minute you're over here and you've got to You've got to look the part. You've got to be ready. You can't be disorganized. You've got to put on a session or you've got to do whatever. Um, so if you're talking about, again, working in other countries, being adaptable, being flexible, working under pressure, all these things, I, I, that's where I encourage people to work in these cultures. Because I think now I, I definitely am a lot more laid back. You know, when I came back to England, my wife was joking. She was like, you've been Moroccan. And she was saying it as a joke, but compliment as well a little bit and she was saying like you're just so calm now and I think that's so important I think sometimes in coaching in management in leadership we're assuming what that other person needs what we're not necessarily understanding their position first we're wanting to be understood first and we're in this rat race and we want to go 100 miles an hour we want to do what we want to do and go at the speed we want to go whether that's right or wrong and whether they need it or not I'm definitely able to see things from a a different perspective now and probably tweak how I am with different people. And it comes back to that first bit, which is, um, you know, recognizing when to be vulnerable, when not to be, what, what you can do, what you can't do, um, be a really good observer, try and bring people with you. Don't just impose stuff on them and as well as allow you to be brought with them. Sometimes you've got to be, that can be vulnerable, but in a different way and, the, and having that humility or whatever to go, Let's just go with it. You know, Keith's saying this. Let's just go with it and see where it takes us and, and, and go with the flow. Well, Jared, you talk about great learning experiences and, and obviously travel and experience in different cultures and, and people with different backgrounds. That's probably the biggest way yeah. to learn uh, is just getting thrown straight in at the deep end and having to learn on the job. Since you've now left uh, the Moroccan Federation, you, you're currently embarking on doing a, a PhD, which is a completely different type of learning to yeah. start with, but also extremely beneficial. Can you share with us what your, your research and your PhD is about? Yeah, so I'm studying a PhD in, you know, they the normally use the word skill acquisition, but I would rephrase that as skill adaptation because you know, players need to be able to adapt to the game. So you're not necessarily acquiring something, you're adapting and you're developing players to become skillfully adaptable in games because the game is forever changing, right? It's a it's a dynamic, unpredictable sport, complex sport. And I'm studying that at Sheffield Hallam with Professor Keith Davids is my director of studies. He's one of the, the leading researchers and experts in the world around 
ecological dynamics, constraints-led approach, that type of stuff. And my PhD in, in simple terms is investigating how coaches use feedback. So their everyday coaching vocabulary, how they're using feedback to guide the, the visual search of the player. So how they're using their information to guide where the player looked for information because I'm coming from the position that I'm viewing practice as search and learning as searching. So if we if we see the game as we know that over 85% of the information players receive is through their eyes, of course they're getting from all kinds of different senses, but players are making decisions based on time, space, and number variations, right? So and it's changing. Every situation is changing, and they have to be able to play in the future, recognize triggers, identify information in the game where in the environment where they can come up with their own adaptable solution. And that's where my PhD is investigating that. So I'm looking into the practice design and how does the practice design linked with the ability to use information. So how they set challenges, how they sometimes may give direct instruction if they need to, how they will give clues, ask questions, but structure their sentence in such a way that it guides the search of the player to have to look for information from the environment. And it's, you know, I'm coming from the position where it's perhaps less about telling the player what to do, where to look or how to move, but actually guiding the player in such a way where we're tapping into the perception of what the player's seen rather than what the coach is seeing, because they might have a better view, you know, they probably have. And that's what my uh, PhD is in at the minute, which is really interesting, really, really cool. In doing your PhD in on skill adaptation, what other areas of soccer do you envisage will benefit from that research? It'll, it'll definitely improve how we think about coach development, coach education, because we're taught, and we've all got some great experiences here, haven't we? Because we've all been on coaching courses, we've all done that, and we've been mentors and developers in different ways. So even if you look at our journeys, they're probably very similar in that you're not really getting lots of detail around going into the who, the how, or the why. There's a lot around the what and the X's and O's, typically when you go on coach education. And coaches tend to be quite bogged down around formations and tactics. And I get there's team tactics and individual tactics, and I get all that. And, you know, of course, there's value in those things, but when you go out into the real world, you, then you learn how to coach, don't you? And you learn about communication, about player engagement, different types of designs, what works, what doesn't. You could do the same session more than once with the same group of players. And it, it, one, one day it worked and another day it didn't. And why was that? You know, how does your communication impact the decision-making of the player? How does it, you know, and we're never... We maybe have the odd module on psychology or elements of, but it's normally shoehorned into a long day and we're just scratching the surface, if at all. And I think where this research that I'm doing now, and I've been investigating coaches that are working across grassroots development and elite levels around the world. We've done a couple of studies already. We've got some papers in, in process, in press, that are about to come out. We're finding that, coaches are not very reflective on how they, they behave. So they might think that they ask really skillful questions, guided questions, or they might use certain challenges in a, in a way. 
that is structured and that they're guiding the players to look for information from the environment, that, that external focus of attention, that visual search, some people might use the word scanning. I know that's a hot topic at the minute, right? Even if you look at the, the, the FA as an example, or US soccer, they're integrating that within their coaching licensing now because they're recognising that players make decisions before the, the speed of sight. So we've got to develop those skills. And if we want skillful players, we need them to be adaptable, which I keep using that phrase. So design environments that are decontextualizing from, you know, and breaking down the mechanics of a skill in isolation to put them back again to transfer into a game, it doesn't work because it relies on explicit information, which we know breaks down under pressure. And we also know that uh, it develops a dependency on the coach. So when I'm playing in a game and David's team does something different to what we've, we've worked on, which will happen because that's the game. So if we've trained on a, a one-size-fits-all technical model or pattern or one solution, and this is the solution to all problems, well, when they're faced with something that isn't that, which they will because the game's random, what do the players do? They look to the coach for the answer rather than being game responsive and trying to figure it out themselves. So I think what it will do is it'll get coaches to really think deeper about how good they use information, how well they design practices. Are they designing environments that provide choice and consequence, which is really key. And we don't talk about that enough. So giving the players the choice to, to make decisions, what does that look like? What type of environments do we need to create where choice and consequence exist? So if I lose the ball here, what is the consequence of that action? And again, interference, whether it in, in some way, shape or form, either can design interference within the practice, oppose pressure, loads of stuff. But again, the, the key is we, feedback, verbal or others, I'm just going to stick on verbal, is a dominant coaching behaviour. We all like to talk. Coaches tend to say a lot. Yes, we will do stuff with the iPads or Nagelsmann TV. We might do uh, video analysis. We might do it with cones. We might do it with you know, moving things on the, on the, on the table. You, you've got haptic feedback, you've got visual feedback, and you've got verbal. Verbal's the dominant coaching behaviour, and yet what we found is it's the most misused and ineffective behaviour. And we're never really taught how to be better at that. So I would say those type of things, hopefully it'll inspire curiosity where coaches can think about learning as searching, practices search, and how can your communication, your feedback, guide the search of the player? Because every player has their own unique and adaptable movement signature. Because we're all very different. Your body type's different to mine, to David's. We're all different. We're all made up differently. And Bappe will play very differently to Van Dijk, who will play different to a Foden, who will play different to a... So we've got to recognise those individual differences within players. How can we design experiences that create individual difference within our practice or our match day environments? And in doing so, think about the language that we use, because often, you know, feedback given isn't necessarily feedback received and understood. So we're making that assumption that because I've said something, the players have understood it, but they might not. We could be talking the same coaching language. And they've said, oh, you know, Gerard, you're going to love the session. We're working on counter-pressing tonight. I'm going, okay, let's have a look. And I'm thinking, well, that's not counter-pressing. 
And I've asked the coach, rather than making an assumption, I've gone, what do you mean when you say counter-pressing? And the coach has given me his definition. And long story short, I'm head of coaching in that particular example. I've got a different definition to the 16s the coach. He's got a different definition to David. He's got a different definition to... So between all of us, we're not even on the same page. And the players have a different interpretation. But we're assuming, well, one, we're measuring progress. Well, we can't. We can't measure how the players are learning and developing and performing. And two, we're assuming that they understand, but we're not even aligned. So I think there's loads of that within the culture. Um, and this will hopefully, you know, spark some curiosity around even areas such as like your, your, the social, cultural influences or constraints that exist in organisations that shape how coaches behave. Because we've got to be honest and transparent. David, you'll coach very differently if a certain person's there than somebody else. And in some cases, that can be okay. So you might not, but there'll be coaches who, if let's say the technical director's there or the academy manager's there, do they change? And if so, why? If not, why not? You know, and what what, what are some of the micro politics that exist and shape how we form that language? that brings our game to life in the minds of the players. And, yeah, it's really exciting. It's really exciting, really curious. And I think it's going to open a whole world of coaches going beyond the what and really thinking about the who, who's in front of us, how do I deliver that message, and how do I ensure that there's clarity in the message as well? Because there's got to be clarity. I'm going to I'm gonna go back a couple of steps yeah. Scanning. Yeah. Which is an interesting topic and, and something that I know you've spoke about previously as well. Um, it's obviously part of, of what you're doing with the PhD. It, it's, it's an element of it. In your opinion, at what ages would you start working on scanning with players? I think you could do it from all ages. It will look different, but it's an interesting question because we're all scanning or searching anyway. And, and I would probably use the word search, which I think is that exploratory behavior to look for information from the environment in order to come up with your own adaptable solution. We're, we're searching from when you're a baby, you know, when you're crawling or learning to crawl, eventually standing up, learning to walk, navigating through the road, you know, how, what, how do children learn not to bump into other people when you walk along the, the pavement or to cross the road or to, you know, the door's about to close. How do you learn to get through that gap or not or delay your run or what? So I would say we're constantly doing this anyway because of the environment. All the information we need is in the environment. I think the, the challenge for the coach is understanding the difference between the game and their game because their game is very different to the game. But then what does that look like for U7, U8 at 4v4 or 3v3 or whatever, you know, or even U9, U10 at 7v7? It's going to look very different, and it should. We shouldn't necessarily, you know, speed the kids up and take the escalator up to the adult game. We've got to recognise that they're on their own journey and some will get there. No different to, you know, my first son was walking at nine months, the other one was walking after 12, I think. They'll get there when they get there. It doesn't mean it's right or wrong. But going back to the scanning piece or the searching, it would exist from the earliest start because if we're designing environments that are offering choice, so decisions to make, problems to solve, 
So it's there's some clear form of direction. There's a clear method of scoring, whether that be an end zone, whether that be a target, whether that be a, a counter goal, whether that be a big goal, whatever it may be, whether it be another challenge playing into certain players. And it will vary what it looks like at different age groups, and it should because they're working on different things and they're at different stages of their development. But there should be a clear method of scoring. There should be competition in different ways to make it motivating and challenging because that's the game. The game score more goals than the opposition. And lastly, it should be clarity. So they're my like four C's, if you like. Choice, competition, challenge, individual collective challenges. So they've got to figure stuff out and they're given problems to solve rather than answers. But in doing so, you're guiding the players to have to search in the environment for the information rather than the coach telling them where to look, what to do and how to move. And that then creates a clarity. Maybe controversial, but against uh, metal men and mannequins, well, the cone doesn't move, the mannequin doesn't move. There's no visual information coming from that. Now, if you're going to use that, I'll give you another example. Let's say you, you're working on... Uh, let's say you're developing goalkeepers and you've got certain obstacles in there to offer interference. Okay, I can get that because there's some kind of block there, maybe. Might be blocking the vision of the, the shot or whatever. I think this is where coaches have to really think about what is it they're trying to, the, to design. So think about the player action and think about what will the players need to see or where will they have to look for information in order to solve those problems. So is it the body shape of... Uh, Keith, is it the time and an angle of movement from you know Mo Salah? Is it the eye contact before he releases that ball? Is it something else? Is it recognizing that actually I can play with a bit of disguise and deception here and promote that as a premium value? Play with disguise, play with deception, make your intentions look like you're going one way, but actually you're going to go the other. And that's how coaches will develop scanning and or searching from the earliest age. And then it will get more detailed as they go older because obviously cognitively they can they can assume more information and visually they can see more you know the child's vision is like this isn't it it's very low to the ground per peripheral vision they're not aware that's why kids bump into things and we've got to be careful that we don't shout the answer and that takes time just the environment in terms of helping to provide an enriching environment for players does that play a part in the in the player learning and does it help them for this skill adaptation and equally help them to, to learn these visual searches that you're currently talking about? Yeah, the answer to that is yes. And I think if the coach has to design these environments and experiences. I think we're, we're, we're a designer of experiences. We're, we're, we're thinking about what experiences will these players need to, to have and have, have, have felt as part of their library right, that they can draw on that's going to help them to get to where they need to be. So really seeing that player as, a, as an individual project and everyone is different and they're going to go on their own trajectory. And absolutely the answer is yes, because I think if we design environments where they don't have to search, so think about a, a, a passing drill. You know, and there's loads of coaches that do this, this Ajax passing. I don't need to search because, because of the rules of the activity, I know that when you pass me the ball, I go there because that's what you've told me to do. So the pattern we're working on is I get the ball, A, B makes a movement here, and I play into B, and then I go somewhere else. 
they're not having to solve a problem. They're just rehearsing a movement. And that's the difference. But if you now introduce a defender of some kind, so even if it is a passing drill, which people like to do, but maybe the player who's waiting for his turn behind me, what if he could step in and intercept? So if that pass is slow, he's going he's gonna to try and nick it or she'll nick it. There's some kind of threat on the ball or interference for them to solve that problem. So then I think for the coaches, how does he skillfully design that so it's either not too challenging and not under-challenging? Where's that sweet spot for those players and for the individual? What challenges, what conditions or rules can he do, you know, constraints on the task or on the environment to help amplify or dampen certain things that he wants to get out? Based on the design of that activity, then that'll encourage them to have to search for information. And that goes back to my earlier point, learning as searching. And if we view learning as searching, we will design more learning environments that are promoting the ability to be skillfully adaptable and what that looks like under varying degrees of pressure, because that's the environment they've got to, they've got to play in. On that topic, then, what information-rich detail would an effective skank consist of? Well, I think anything that's allowed the player, because obviously they're solving problems like that, aren't they? You know, I think it's where they can look for information that's going to help them play in the future. There'll be stuff that's instinctive in the moment for sure, but you've also got to have that ability where you're not playing in reaction to things, you're playing ahead. So, because the picture is changing and you're trying to solve problems further along the line type of thing. So I would say that, it could be where you're asking a question or you're giving a clue. So you, the coach is sharing information. Players can share it amongst themselves. But the language they use is guiding the search externally. So they're having to look, recognise, is it hip flexion? Is it time and movement? Is it where's the deepest defender? Before you receive the ball, how can you see, how can you see the opponent's goal before you receive the ball? That'll, open, that'll hopefully adjust my body shape or help me in some way. I might just move my eyes without having to move my head. I might move my head and I might see something that's glaring, that's actually, wow, this defender's about to step or maybe there's a defender that's about to come and try and pinch it. So maybe I just walk backwards a little bit and I play on his blind side and now I'll make a, a late but quick run and I've received the ball. The, so it's game players to really just notice where to look and it comes into the art of noticing. And I think for coaches, how often do we talk about this? What do you want to notice in the practice or in the game? Why are you noticing? Because coaches will try to see everything and then in doing so see nothing. And they're going to try and the best to accurately recall what happened or what should have happened by drawing on some of the things that may have happened to give information to the player to solve that problem better next time. I think for, and video is a great way to be more objective in that, but I would say we've got to be very clear in when we're in a game or in a, a practice environment, it's the art of noticing. So what is it we're, we're trying to notice? Is it that I'm watching just the back four today or the back three? Is it that I'm noticing his movements before he receives the ball? So what are the timing and the execution of his movements, how does that look under different degrees of pressure when the, when the defender's around him, to the side, wherever it may be? How does he adjust his body 
to solve that problem when he's up against somebody pressed in tight areas. And if he's, and then all of a sudden you're really getting everything you need to see. And then I'll be asking questions of the player is what did you think or feel in those moments? What did you see? And sometimes they can't tell you, can they? Let's be honest. They can't verbalize it. So you might say, close your eyes and tell me what you saw. So they're drawing on reflection, or it might just be try and show me some of the things you're trying to do there. And then you can pull the answers out from them and you're getting them to have to really search and look, try to view it and tap into the perception of the player. So I've seen players give the ball away. And from our viewpoint, where we are on the sideline, we're noticing things. We've got all this knowledge in our head. We're seeing things happen. Right, here's the solution. I can do that because from my viewpoint, maybe the execution of what he was trying to do or she was trying to do was, let's say, wrong. But actually, it might not have been wrong. They might have been trying to do something. They saw something that we didn't see. And that might have been a far better solution than what we could even come up with. We don't necessarily want players to just rehearse and regurgitate the solutions that we've come up with over the past. But actually, how can they te- can evolve the game onto another level? Show me something that we've not seen before. Are there any optimal distances a player is aware from the ball where the focus of attention can be heightened and so therefore increases the you like the success rate for the player? Interesting. And definitely you can vary that within your, within your challenges. But I would go a, a, a bit further back in that you've got distance and distance does play a part. And I would encourage anyone to look into research around uh, Gabriel Wolf, who looked at internal and external focus of attention. Um, I will, uh, she's coming from a slightly different psychology or paradigm to me, but great research. She's been doing it for many, many years. Another guy called Nick Winkleman, who talked about his sort of 4D approach of how he looks at uh, direction, distance, and so on, to answer your question. Uh, but I would want to go back a little bit because... What's really important is the vocab that influences those things. So, yes, you can maybe have a goal further away, player further away, closer, area sizes will manipulate where people are looking for information. Of course they will. But the language that you use can inhibit the distance and where you look for information. So if I give, we're taught to give technical detail, whatever technical detail looks like where we break down the mechanics of the skill. But that leads to an internal focus of attention where the player looks at the body mechanics. So if I'm saying to a player, you must put your right foot here, your standing foot's this way, you're going to use this foot to strike the ball, using this part of the foot. Or when you're pressing, you're going to be this body shape, you're going to do this. And we're taught to do those, aren't we? We've been taught to use demonstrations and and show the answer or explain the answer. The danger with that is it leads to what's called an internal focus of attention, which inhibits their ability to to see things from different distances and at different times. And it's actually been found, which is really interesting, which is never talked about. It's led to more anxiety, breakdown when under pressure, because they're so fixated on trying to get the correct technique right that they're not actually adapting their body in the moment. So it's not, they're not in uh, this sort of um, automatic state. I don't know if that's the right words. They're, they're not playing natural. They're, they're, they're trying to recreate something that has been imposed to them. It's led to more injuries. 
so more injuries have occurred and there's been a, a deeper depression and lack of motivation in players so there's been studies that have looked into and, and actually interviewed players and they've found to have uh, issues with confidence taking risks and so on but yet we've for years we've all done it i've done it there's been times where we've given supposed technical detail and we've broken down the technique or we've showed somebody is that that's the question external focus of attention is where you're using language to guide the player to look externally for information from the environment where you're not telling them how to move and even necessarily where to look or how to look but you're guiding them so that they'll look for what they need to look for and they'll optimally grip onto stuff so you're guiding them to optimally grip onto information from the environment and use that however they need to use it you know if the defenders are like this kind of split them and break that line or however it may be i would say be very careful of a dualism because i've made a, a strong argument there and for people listening they might be thinking well that's interesting be careful of dualisms because it's not to say that this is amazing and this is the only way and that's bad because i'm sure somewhere some things will have value it's just recognizing that if we're trying to get players to become skillfully adaptable and optimally grip onto information from the environment, come up with their own solution. We want to play in the future. We want to use transitional information, which is where you're guiding the attentional search of the player, the visual search of the player. If we want to play an abstract and break down the mechanics of the skill, we're playing an abstract to the game, then we can give more information-rich technical detail. We can actually tell them what to do and we can even show them. If we want to play in confusion, we can try to give them a bit of guided questions but we're pretty much influenced you know because the question's phrased in such a way even if it's a closed question there's a clear right and wrong answer so for the kids they're not really but then sometimes you you're encouraging them to experiment and explore and discover but you're kind of saying i kind of want you to do this <laughs> so but sometimes that can be useful playing in confusion where there's a, a bit of um ambiguity Sometimes it can be advantageous. So for coaches, it's just recognizing what where are you on that model, if you like. Equally, there'll be times where you might need to short circuit decision making. You might need to help them and sprinkle a bit of gold dust in a different way where you're giving them the answer. But then how can you lead with a better question next time? Otherwise, if you keep giving them the answer, you're going to lead to an internal focus of attention, inhibit their visual search, lack of confidence, anxiety, depression and injuries if you're too far the other way where it's pure expiration they don't know what to look for they're confused where's a sweet spot somewhere in the middle and go on that journey with the player and it'll look different every time i love the term optimally grip now depending on the side or oh, in terms of player development players can actually see distance they can see that they lift their eye line up they want to play out the pitch the decision, in their opinion, is the appropriate one, but unfortunately, because of their development, physical development, they're not capable of actually getting the ball and transferring it from one place to another successfully. So although the decision is right, technically, they haven't got the physical strength at the moment to be able to, to transfer ball from A to B and get it there efficiently. How do we work with players like that? Because it's right for them. It is a right decision, but it's the wrong timing in terms of where they are in their own personal development. I think that's a great question. 
I think it comes back to like player actions and what players can do what. I actually saw a similar session recently where I was asking myself the question of the, the coach was wanting the player to basically play these longer passes and try and switch the point of attack. But the ball just wasn't able to reach there. This was with under nines. So she's almost imposing the adult game upon the kids. Some could do it actually or slightly, but most couldn't physically or even distance covered and things like that. And I was asking myself, you know, are the balls too hard at first? I was like, are the balls too hard? I was trying to think about that. Then I was looking at the area size. And I think, again, it's how do you amplify or dampen stuff? So if you want to help them at recognising certain things to, to solve that problem, do you adjust the area size so that they're able to achieve it and then gradually increase it over time in accordance with them being able to reach and develop the physical capacity to do that? Do you or do you not? Some people might go, no, they've got to be able to, you know, some parents have gone, no, try and hit that target. And over time, the kid will figure it out over time. They'll figure out, well, do I have to kick it harder? Do I have to? But then the danger with that is they they might, I've seen it where we've all done this, you know, hit that spot on that wall, that little brick there. The kid will, oh, I'm going to hit this as hard as I can and try and get some accuracy and he'll get there. But then he'll keep repeating that technique. And what he'll find is as his legs or her legs get stronger, now he's blazing it over the over. So now that technique isn't adaptable anymore. It's the because now they've developed a bit physically or whatever. They, it's the wrong technique, if you like, or the wrong skill, wrong solution. So then they've got to recognize, all right, maybe it's less about power and more about um maybe the rhythm of how I strike the ball or whatever. And I think that's where coaches have got to do it. Just design experiences where they're gonna get. Slightly different, varied problems. I think varied is a, is a great word. Varied experiences. And really think about the player actions that they're able to achieve. So every child is different. And we shouldn't be in this like mad rush to get them to the game and the top level. Um, and that's not to say we can't sprinkle some stuff on there that is really cool, because we can. But just go at their speed, really. Travel at the speed of the player and the speed of learning rather than the speed of the coach. Jared, final question for you. Mentioned your PhD. At the end of your research, what specifically would you hope to have influenced in your field of work? I'd want to really help coaches become more effective and efficient in how they use feedback because it is a dominant coaching behaviour. And I want to be, I think this is really important. I think you've, you've got to figure out like, what's your strength and what's your curiosity and what's that little magic extra, that, that ability. I use this phrase right at the start, which was uh, how can you operate in your own genius, right? And we all have our little thing and it's really hard to figure out what it is. But when you do, you've got to run with it. And I, I'm, I've always been passionate, even years ago, around practice design and, and more importantly, communication feedback linked with, with searching, with scanning, all these things. So I almost want to be like the one day, hopefully, like the leading expert in that particular field. You've got some coaches out there who are specialists in set pieces. Some are specialists in a certain type of learning or whatever, or dealing with vulnerable adults or whatever it may be. And I think that's great. And I'm hoping that through my own curiosity, I can inspire other coaches to just look deeper into it, right? And become more effective and efficient at how they use feedback because it is a dominant coaching behavior to guide the players 
to look for information from the environment because we haven't, we're not working with robots. The moment that that person crosses the line, they're playing the game, not us. And I think, you know, often we get so caught up in the emotion of the game and what the right way to do it is, or even the result, we forget about the journey that the child needs to take. And even at the top level, I think it's still applicable. They're still on a journey. Individual development should still occur even at the higher levels. And we see that with some of the best athletes, the best people in the world across any industry. They're constantly, they're obsessed to be the best out there. They're obsessed to get better. And that's what I want to do in my PhD. I want to sprinkle a little bit of gold, sprinkle a little bit of excitement, a bit of curiosity, where hopefully it gives more people questions and answers. And maybe they can take it on to another level. And they can actually go, do you know what, Jerry? You've opened something here. This is something none of us have even thought about, thought about, including myself. And they take it somewhere else. And that's great because now we're elevating standards and uh, hopefully we achieve that. Well, I think you've certainly created lots of curiosity without a shadow of a doubt. And, and if that does actually stimulate an interest from those who have been listening to this podcast, then the game's going to benefit. And what you certainly have, have opened up is probably another way in how to approach certain things as opposed to just organizing practices. There's a lot of depth behind all of this. There's a lot of thought. And just by using simple little terms like you've been using optimally grip, you know, visual searches, it's, it's created that from within myself. Now, if those who are actually listening wanted to reach out to you, how can they reach you? Yeah, so obviously we're all in the same game. So really encourage people to, to reach out because I think the more conversations we're having about these topics, the more we're going to learn and improve. So they can get me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is uh, Gerard, G-E-R-A-R-D underscore Jones. Um, and also I've got, you know, my own coach, digital coach education platform, Ulearnbly. So they can go on U-L-E-A-R-N-B-L-Y.com. There's a ton of resources on their courses, courses on this topic, on these topics. And uh, they can email me as well. And yeah, excited to, to keep the conversation going. Well, thank you ever so much. On behalf of David and myself, we really enjoyed uh, having you with us today and on behalf of the listeners as well. So good luck with everything. Thank you again for your time. And uh, we'll, keep a, we'll be keeping an eye on how that research is, is, uh, is going along. No, thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast, and also you can visit our website at the Gold Dust Coach. Dot com. Thank you, everybody.